Watch that old fire as it flickers and dies The once blessed the household and lit up our lives It shone for the friends and the clinking of glasses I'll tend to the flame, you can worship the ashes Capture the wild things and bring them in line And own what was never your right to confine The lives and the loves and the songs are what matters I'll tend to the flame, you can worship the ashes Do you feel heavy, your eyes drop with grief? Your spirit is wild and your suffering is brief So never you buckle and bend to the masses I'll tend to the flame, you can worship the ashes Get round a fire with a glass of strong ale And tell us a story from beyond the pale Bury some seeds and expect some strong branches I'll tend to the flame, you can worship the ashes Now show me a man that can meet all his needs For what we need most now is unity seed A common old song for all creeds and all classes I'll tend to the flame, you can worship the ashes I'll tend to the flame It is halted for friend and for foe Try to hold on to the time as it passes I'll tend to the flame, you can worship the ashes I'll tend to the flame, you can worship the ashes I'll tend to the flame, you can worship the ashes everyone, Matt here. Welcome to War Machine. Today is Ash Wednesday, the first day of Lent, and the title of this episode is Ashes. Perhaps not the most inventive title in the world, but it fits with the occasion and it's a decent uh, way to thematize the discussion that follows, where we'll center on finitude, death, mortality, and so on. Uh, and that, I suspect, will we'll broaden out a bit into related themes of uh, apocalypticism, mutation, secularism, uh, emptiness, etc. I'm not sure. We're going to get to that momentarily. Uh, but I have an exciting announcement to make, and I don't excite too easily, as you may know. Uh, Justin Pearl, who many of you uh, I'm sure know, he's been on the show not too long ago, is joining War Machine as an official co-host. And so, yeah, I'm really happy about it. Um, I guess I should say, in case you're, anyone's wondering, Petra is not going anywhere, as far as I know. We're just adding to the family here. And uh, yeah, I think Justin brings a, a great energy to conversation. Uh, and of course, I really appreciate him as a thinker and interlocutor uh, and as a, as a person in general. I guess I should add that. There's a little bit more to the story here. Uh, I'll try not to spend too much time on this. 
But Justin and I recently launched the Radical Theology Seminar, uh, which is basically an ongoing series of seminar-style discussions with leading scholars in the field. I'm going to avoid getting too deep into a description of all of that right now. Uh, we'll probably have more to say about it soon. Um, the second part of the announcement is that Justin and I, uh, well, and Petra too, we, we all spoke about it, but we've decided together to make War Machine the official, and I use that term kind of loosely here, the official podcast of the Radical Theology Seminar. What does that mean? Well, it means we'll hopefully be able to produce more content for the podcast uh, in a way that's not going to change the character of things that we do here. Radical Theology is kind of home base for me, has been for several years. At the same time, that's not going to be a limiting factor in terms of the kinds of things we'll talk about in this space. Really, it just provides a certain... I don't know, uh, a center, point of reference that I think can be, yeah, useful, productive, whatever you want to say. For me personally, it means feeling less pulled in multiple directions uh, by different commitments. And yeah, I'm just psyched about having three regular co-hosts. It feels very Trinitarian. Petrin, Justin, and I will be co-equal in power and glory. And we're not always going to appear at the same time. Um, being on different continents um, is a little bit prohibitive in that sense. Uh, if anyone out there is interested in contributing to the show, hit me up. Again, I'll link to the Radical Theology Seminar in the show notes. Uh, please check it out. Sign up if you think it's something uh, you'd be interested in. I think that's it for now. If you like the song in the introduction, it's called Ashes. Uh, it's by an Irish group called The Longest Johns, which I, I don't understand what that name is about. It's it's almost like they started with Long Johns, and then they're just like, no, our Johns are way longer. Maybe it gets really cold where they live in Ireland. Uh, but we'll link to where you can find them, check them out, support their music. And yeah, all right, let's get to the episode. Here is my recent conversation with newly minted War Machine co-host Justin Pearl. Peace. Oh, that that angry about my taco. The distress about the broken taco is definitely staying in. <laughs> Bullshit. <laughs> I mean, there's a reason why I think you're drawn to radical theology is like when you see a broken taco, it's really a sort of larger metaphor for, <laughs> for existence as such. <laughs> my, ta- my taco's canonic. It's self-emptying. <laughs> I liked it. If you I leave that it. joke in the podcast, I will never forgive you. <laughs> oh, no. That's, that's going to lead. That's going to lead. <laughs> oh god, worst go a little bit ever. No, it's great. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. Welcome to the War Machine family. Uh yeah, it is great to be here. I'm I'm really excited about uh getting to participate a little bit more in this project. The episodes that I recorded with you and Petra. Um, we're a lot of fun, uh, and I'd like to keep keep doing stuff like that. And so we shall. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so for this episode, we're going to try something, again, a little bit different from what we normally do. Um, you and I have each selected uh, a couple of excerpts or readings or very short texts that we're going to dig into a little bit around the themes, general theme of finitude and death on the occasion of Ash Wednesday. So the way we're going to do it is we'll do your readings first and then we'll switch to mine. So, you know, take it away. Do you want to uh, introduce your first reading? Do you want to say something about, you know, wh- why you chose this? Yeah, so I have uh, two readings. Um, the first one is the opening prologue uh, to The Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche. Uh, and the second is a poem by Emily Dickinson. Uh, so in each of these cases, I was looking for something that was in some sense a meditation on ashes. Uh, and each of these, I think, employ ashes in a different um 
sort of non-traditional way. So in the case of the Emily Dickinson poem, ashes tend to serve as a metaphor for the creative work of art, uh, which I think is, um, is a, is a fairly bold take to, to think of ashes, which we generally render as, as destruction and as excess and as the, you know, it's the leftovers. Um, so to think of the creative work as the ashes, I think is really interesting. And I'd like to dig into that. Um, in the case of Zarathustra's prologue, what I'm really interested in is the inversion of fire and ashes. Mm -hmm. um, so we can mm -hmm. talk more about this, but I think the thing to, to listen to uh, is the way that the fire, uh, the, the ashes come first and the fire comes second. So um, he ascends the mountain with ashes and returns yeah. with fire. Uh, and and I really want to dig into what's what's the deal with that inversion. When Zarathustra was 30 years old, he left his home and the lake of his home and went into the mountains. There he enjoyed his spirit and solitude and for 10 years did not weary of it. But at last his heart changed and rising one morning with the rosy dawn, he went before the sun, and spake thus unto it, Thou great star, what would be thy happiness if thou hadst not those for whom thou shinest? For ten years hast thou climbed hither unto my cave. Thou wouldst have wearied of thy light and of the journey, had it not been for me, mine eagle and my serpent. But we awaited thee every morning, took from thee thine overflow, and blessed thee for it. Lo, I am weary of my wisdom. Like the bee that hath gathered too much honey, I need hands outstretched to take it. I would fain bestow and distribute, until the wise have once more become joyous in their folly, and the poor happy in their riches. Therefore must I descend into the deep, as thou doest in the evening when thou goest behind the sea, and givest light also to the netherworld, thou exuberant star. Like thee must I go down, as men say, to whom I shall descend. Bless me then, thou tranquil eye, that canst behold even the greatest happiness without envy. Bless the cup that is about to overflow, that the water may flow golden out of it, and carry everywhere the reflection of thy bliss. Lo, this cup is again going to empty itself, and Zarathustra is again going to be a man. Thus began Zarathustra's down-going. 2. Zarathustra went down the mountain alone, no one meeting him. When he entered the forest, however, there suddenly stood before him an old man, who had left his holy cot to seek roots, and thus spake the old man to Zarathustra, no stranger to me is this wanderer. Many years ago passed he by. Zarathustra he was called, but he hath altered. Then thou carriedst thine ashes into the mountains. Wilt thou now carry thy fire into the valleys? Fearest thou not the incendiary's doom? Yea, I recognize Zarathustra. Pure is his eye and no loathing lurketh about his mouth. Goeth he not along like a dancer? Altered is Zarathustra, a child hath Zarathustra become, an awakened one is Zarathustra. What wilt thou do in the land of the sleepers? As in the sea hast thou lived in solitude, and it hath borne thee up. Alas, wilt thou now go ashore? Alas, Wilt thou again drag thy body thyself? When I saw that you you had chosen this, I was really, I don't know, um, partly excited, but are also partly intimidated. I consider myself something of a Nietzschean, and I'm always excited to talk about Nietzsche because it, you know the, his texts are so so rich, so filled with intensity and energy. There's so many valences uh, possible. Um, because he's as much an artist as he is a philosopher or, or non-philosopher, you know, depending on how you want to think about that. But why did you choose this? What do you want to get into? What do you want to talk about? 
Yeah, so in a certain sense, I there's like an overwhelming fecundity to this big Zarathustra that that sort of like you, I find somewhat overwhelming. Um, I did a, a course when I was um, in a master's program at BU that was, you know, it was marketed as a Nietzsche course in the philosophy department. And when we got there, as it turned out, um, the class was made up entirely of just the first three sections of the Spig Zarathustra. Like that was the text of the course. Um, and so we worked through this text extremely closely, which is, uh, you know, I'm not an expert. I, I, I don't know, but I, I, I say that not, not to talk about, you know, what I'll be able to bring to the table, but rather about the, the sort of overwhelming intensity, right? You can spend 15 weeks studying excerpts of only three quarters of this book uh, and still not really plumb the depths of it. Yeah. Um, I think there's something really remarkable. And I think the prologue in many ways is a condensation of the whole. Um, so you get, you know, the themes of embodiment and the themes of ascent and descent, mm -hmm. um, and the, the themes of self-overcoming. It's all captured in this, this passage. And I think it really centers on that, that paradox of the ashes, right? The Zarathustra was the man who carried his ashes up the mountain and then returned back with fire. And I think being able to decode what's happening a little bit with the ashes and the fire there, um, I think opens up a, um, a way of, of, of thinking about not only this text or even Nietzsche, uh, but of thinking about what, what creativity uh, means and what it means to uh, fear to be punished as an arsonist. Yeah. I think with, with, with Nietzsche, a lot of times there's a sort of very clever reversal oftentimes that, that's going on. You know, I haven't read this in several years, but when I was reading it to, to prepare for today, I was you know, again, struck by like how how obvious this is a certain retelling of Plato's allegory of the cave. But then also there's all these very sort of explicitly Christian resonances. Why is he 30 years old? You know, clearly there's there's an allusion to Jesus there. Um, why is that? Why is Nietzsche interested in making that connection? And then, yeah, as you said, these, these themes of ascent and descent going down into the valley of men. Right, you have the symbol of the cup, uh, a cup which apparently turns water golden. Um, you know, and then maybe it's a nice Chardonnay or a strong ale or something. But I, I think it's hard to miss the reference of turning water into wine here. And plenty of folks have remarked on the different associations between Christ and Dionysius, or however you say that. Um, you know, it's a contrast that Nietzsche himself. It, it, it's important to Nietzsche too. All of these things come together in a way that I think that's really important about um, what Nietzsche was intending here. And if I'm not mistaken, this was something he began working on during the gay science, right? And yeah, I believe that's right. Yeah. Wherein, of course, uh, the famous parable of the madman and the, the death of God stuff. And so I think the death of God is a starting point for Nietzsche. And it's, it's like almost assumed from the beginning. Zarathustra comes down from the mountain and he talks to the wise guy in the forest and he's just like, what? You haven't even heard that God is dead? Okay. It's like, let's keep it moving. But that's almost signaling that this is an assumed starting point, even while he's like beginning in these recognizable traditions. But then he wants to take them in, in this new direction. And I think ultimately Nietzsche is a reformer more than a revolutionary figure, which is not necessarily a critique, but... Yeah, I, I mean, I... I think you're right to want to position the death of God in this section. So one of the places where my mind went, right, because, you know, we're, we're doing this as an Ash Wednesday reflection of sorts. Mm -hmm. um, and part of my mind actually went to a different place, which is the transfiguration. Um, so what I was thinking a little bit about is the way that in the transfiguration narrative, you have Jesus, he takes his sort of, you know, three BFFs. Uh, they go to the top of a mountain that is unnamed uh, and he transfigures, right? He he glows. He becomes dazzlingly white. And the allusions there are to the burning bush and in a bunch of other narratives as well. But, the you know, the central allusion there is the burning bush. Like, you know, Mo Moses shows up. That's not a coincidence yeah. um, uh, to observe the burning bush. And it is uh, it is Christ. So there's this way in which he ascends the mountain in order to for the sort of passionate fire of God's glory to be revealed in its glory. Um, what I find really interesting here is, you know, this is a canonic 
this is a death of God narrative in the sense yeah. that he ascends the mountain with ashes and it's actually his descent where he's bringing the fire down, right? It's, it's a Prometheus narrative. He's, he goes mm-hmm. up to a mountain and brings fire back down. And so it's this idea that what in the traditional Christian theistic narrative is the glory of God reserved for God held in places of transcendence. Um, that fire is now being brought, that glory is being brought down you know, as we'll see, it's being brought into the marketplace. Uh, so if you were to continue right. reading after where we cut off, uh, the next place he heads is down into like a town center, into a into a marketplace. Uh, and this is where the fire, the glory is is descending. And I don't think that's I don't think those are coincidental illusions. Right. I think this is being woven into this narrative. This is a, a narrative of the death of God. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. And that. um that maps onto the the madman parable. That's where he pronounces the death of God. It's not in the church, it's in the marketplace. And I think that contrast that you're talking about between ashes and fire is like super interesting one to think about because ashes and fire are, they're two aspects of the same phenomenon. And yet one is presumably anterior. Like you're suggesting this subtle reversal that's going on here. And I think at the same time, there's a spirit versus letter thing at play here too, making a contrast between uh, tradition and what funds those traditions. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right because, you know, I'm thinking of, of some of his, his later writings. It's uh, what is it? The, is it the camel, the lion and the baby? I think. Yeah. The is child. Yeah. Terrible? You enter the desert as the camel, uh, which is, means that you enter the world sort of carrying the burdens of, um, of everything that has been given to you, everything that has been traditioned to you. And you carry that out into the desert where it is, you know, attacked and devoured by the lion. You you enter this um, this posture of critique where you question and you destroy that which you have been given. For Nietzsche, he's really, I think, insistent in a way that I think would be really helpful for contemporary thinkers that you can't end in critique, that it always is about new creation for him. It's always about new generation. And so the the third moment of this sort of Hegelian triad becomes the moment of the child where you have a, a birth that comes out of the, the, the destruction and the consumption of tradition. Uh, so when the, the camel and its load is destroyed by the lion, what comes out is the child. I think this is analogous to what we find in this passage, right? The the carrying of the ashes means you're carrying something that is dead. Um, he'll, he refers to uh, a process of mummification. Um, that theology is a process of mummification for him. You take something that is, is, is living and alive and you kill it and you stuff it um, in order to make something that you can seize and control. And I think that's the ashes that are being brought to the top of the mountain. And what he brings back down is fire, which is creative and powerful and potentially destructive, um, but also like, you know, world changing, right? You know, uh, ultimately, you know, the industrial revolution is a revolution of the use of fire, um, the agricultural revolution, you know, fire was central to these moments as well. Yeah. There is, there is something powerful, but also right. you do you not fear being punished for, as an arsonist? It is powerful, but also potentially destructive in a way that power structures find threatening. Yeah, that sort of um, indeterminacy between liberation and enslavement in technical terms, I think, is something that's like not really explicit here, but is a a related theme that we could go to. But maybe we shouldn't. (laughs) Have you seen um, Frozen? No, Frozen 2? It's I've seen neither Frozen nor Frozen 2. Oh, man, you missed out. It's a wonderful Um, film. It's well, I have a five year old. So. There's a snowman character called Olaf. What's that thing you say, Olaf? Oh, my theory about advancing technologies is both our savior and our doom. No. You want to shift to the um, the Dickinson. I think there are parallels between the two. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think in many ways, Emily Dickinson shares some similar concerns to Nietzsche and that that she's using this notion of ashes to reflect, um, I think, a discontentment around her own poetic corpus, I guess you could say, uh, her own poetic project that she's she's going to try to think through 
what does it mean to be the creator of a work of art by thinking of oneself as fire that is creating ashes, um, which is, again, not the kind of metaphor we normally use for the creative work. We want to think of creative works as powerful, but in some ways, I think she sees creative works as always in some sense mummified, as always in some sense taxidermy, that they are always a failure to capture something. It's a it's a philosophy or a theology of failure, yeah. I think, at the root of, of what she's doing here. Uh, should I read this or do you have a recording of this one as well? Oh, no, definitely read it. All right. Um, so uh, you can never quite do justice to Emily Dickinson by by reading her because, you know, the weird um, uh, grammatical thing she has, the constant use of M dashes are an important piece of this. But here we go. Ashes denote that fire was. Revere the grayest pile. For the departed creature's sake that hovered there a while. Fire exists the first in light and then consolidates. Only the chemist can disclose into what carbonates. There it is, short and sweet. Yeah, I love the brevity of this one, (laughs) frankly. This reads a little bit to me like a prayer um, where there's at least a sort of prayerful mood that I get from that line about revering the grayest pile. That sense of reverence is not, uh, it's not sorrow for what's passed away for the departed creature, but it's something else. I was actually curious about what you think the departed creature is. I couldn't really answer that for myself. I, I, again, this is Emily Dickinson, so it's like probably five things at once. Sure. Um, but I think at least at two levels, it's I think it's the fire is the parted thing, right? So when you have the ashes, it's it is either the fire or what was there before the fire consumed. But mm-hmm. in this instance, I think that the the most direct reading would be to say, you know, it was the pile of logs or the house or whatever it was that burned up. Right. Uh, and that's what's departed now and is now ash. But I think that that's actually not right. And what what clues me into the idea that it's the the fire is the fact that it hovered is what the next line says for the departed creature's sake that hovered there a while. Um, And so I think that what what it is, is the fire. And I think the fire is the passion. Um, So the idea here, I think, is something like the artistic creation is the ashes that remain after the burning of a passion. Mm. And in this sense that there's always a there's always, you know, again, a theology of failure here. There's always a failure that is incarnated in a poetic work, a failure to achieve the passion. And yet at the same time, um, there is a way in which you can revere the greatest pile that you can also you can see through the work of art that is always kind of a failure to get glimpses of that infinite thing that was trying to be captured. Yeah. There was also this like materialist reading that occurred to me when I was reading through this, where she's talking about uh, transformation from one state to another. There's this sort of alchemical valence that I think is really interesting. And I mean, who's the chemist, if not an alchemist, I think there's definitely an esoteric impulse at work here. Um, our friend Trip uses this image of the cathedral. From the outside, it just looks like some old, crummy, antique building, um, and the windows look dark. But from the inside, the windows light up with this, with the life of of tradition and stories. I don't know, maybe it's just my own predisposition or whatever. But I really like those old churches, probably because I grew up in a church that was just like basically a box with a cross in the front. <laughs> but I think there's a beauty and an intensity that that can't be experienced from standing on the street looking at the building, right? You've got to go inside and inhabit the thing. And right. And and I think part of that to use the language of of the poem, right? The the cathedral is the grayest pile in some sense. That yeah. it is 
that through through the cathedral, I think what Emily Dickinson would want to say, at least, is we can catch glimpses of something that exceeds that is always exceeding our grasp, whether whether we want to call that the sacred or the divine or transcendence or, you know, sort of pick your poison. But there is I think there's a sense, at least for people who are captured by those spaces, that it's an architecture that is drawing me past itself into something else. This is I think the cathedral is a great example of this because the verticality of the space is yeah. very intentionally designed to do this. It is it is attempting to pull you out of yourself uh, towards something that is 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 bigger or greater or outside. You know, again, pick your poison. That, Alien. Yeah. Yes. Yes. The <laughs> aliens that 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 built our cathedrals and pyramids um, <laughs> <laughs> that we're being we're being pulled towards something like that. Um, and, and and if we give that reading right, if the grayest pile is the cathedral, I think it gives a dark we create we turn emily dickinson into a death of god theologian in a certain sense right because then what we are glimpsing is the departed creature you know it's the departed sacred that is that you can find uh the remnants of within the cathedral um and that way i think you could bring together emily dickinson and nietzsche in this sense yeah i mean i I think there are certain aspects that where we can read all kinds of people into into the tradition against their will <laughs> wasn't that something we talked about in the most recent seminar with uh daily right yes. like like daily would not really appreciate being appropriated i don't know if that's the word i would use but she would probably use that word and, and yet we have to do that work. Right. And I think this is what the, the, the center of that second stanza, it's about the necessity of interpretation, mm-hmm. you know, only the chemist, i.e. the reader, the interpreter can disclose the way that the fire, the light has consolidated into, uh, into a piece, right. It's, it is the work of reading that reveals the, the passion that underlies something. And that passion isn't always visible to the, the creator, right? It isn't always visible to the artist. You know, this is the, the theme of the death of the author is the idea that pieces speak beyond the intentionality of their creator. radical theology to be renewed, it must always be renewable. That is to say, we must forego both the traditional theological fantasy of creation ex nihilo and the radical theological preoccupation with apocalypticism. The earth does not have the luxury of starting over from scratch. Beyond the very real threat of nuclear annihilation that once rightly spooked the first generation of Death of God theologians, We now know the end of the world as an environmental catastrophe of our own making. Our age is witnessing what Elizabeth Colbert has explored in her Pulitzer Prize-winning book as The Sixth Extinction, humanity's principal and most tragic legacy that threatens to render the Earth uninhabitable for life as we know it. We need more than the absolutism that apocalypticism provides, especially when considering the ways that end-of-the-world fantasies have been marshaled by the most conservative and evangelical forces to withstand or ignore the dire threat that climate change represents. If nothing else, there should be concern that predicating the good news of religion on the world's end plays into the very political and economic machinations that ought to be resisted. Renewal must not be bought at the price of death and destruction. On the contrary, the renewability I have in mind is one mired in the delicate equilibrium of nature, a world not only of evolution and mutation, but also of extinction. So, instead of the fantasy of the phoenix rising from the ashes as an unscathed new creation, I choose Catherine Malibu's image of the salamander, one of nature's own signifying nature's capacity for self-renewal. I choose the image of a body that bears its scars, but nevertheless goes on living. I'm super curious to hear what you make of this section because of some of the conversations that we've had, some of the things we've talked about before. And I think in part it gets to this perennial question that I don't really want to explore now, but like, you know, what is radical theology? I don't want to rehearse all all of those, those things right now. But just in a general sense, what do you think about what Robbins is saying here? I think this text is like, like this, this short excerpt, of course. Um, but I think it's fundamentally right 
I think the differences that I would have with Jeff would be more rhetorical than than substantive, if that makes sense. Right. So I, I want to defend the language of apocalypticism, which I think I think remains really important and useful language right now. Um, so I've written, you know, I published an article um, called I think it was called an apocalyptic eco theology, for example, uh, which explicitly argues for the use of apocalypticism as a language for responding to uh, climate catastrophe. Um, because what I think apocalypticism pr provides is it provides a language of radical change. And I think we're at the point where non-radical change is no longer viable. Right. So the idea like incrementalism is no longer, which I'm not arguing he's arguing for. Right. I don't think he's arguing for incrementalism, but I think it's as a rhetorical tool. I think it is important to fight against the idea of incrementalism because it's just not going to work. We, we don't have, you know, 50 years to solve this problem. We definitely don't have 200 years to solve this problem. Um, and so I think the apocalyptic language can be really helpful here. What he's pushing back against, I think is rightly the way that apocalyptic language in our current society is like pretty dangerous. Um, and it's because of the way it's been twisted. Right. So I grew sure. up in a time where, you know, I was listening to, uh, the left behind books on audio cassette with my mom in a mall parking lot. Um, like Wait, I can remember. Sorry, <laughs> pause. Do you, can you tell, can you tell more about that story, please? We need that. <laughs> I, I have no idea. So my, um, my parents were not particularly religious. So I have no idea how we ended up with a set of left behind tapes. I don't even know if we had the whole set. Actually, I know for a fact, we didn't have the whole set. Yeah. I don't know if we had more than just the first book. It might've just been the first book. Um, but you know, this was back when you could get audiobooks as cassettes. Uh, well, it's like the first matrix. It's it's, that's the only one you need. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you don't need any of them. They're all garbage, but nonetheless, <laughs> they, they're a, they're a good indication of the way that we have conflated apocalypticism with destruction, right? So, you know, renewal must not be bought at the price of death and destruction. I think that sentence in this passage directly correlates to the idea that we have to give up the preoccupation with apocalypticism. Yeah. What I would want to say is apocalypticism properly understood has never been about death and destruction, that it is, it has not been about ex nihilo. It has been about renewal, that it's always about renewal, that apocalypticism in its most fundamental, like originary form, which would be the Jewish apocalypticism that emerges during the period of the Babylonian exile. It is about the renewal of the covenant. It is the insistence that historical circumstances that seem perpetual can always change. So when the Babylonian Empire or the Roman Empire or the Persian Empire or the American Empire tells you we will be here forever and you can never challenge that. Uh, it is the the theology that uses like fucking dragons and angels and all this yeah. bullshit in order to say, actually, no, everything changes and you will change, too. And it speaks to the people who are the victims of those empires and says, no matter how bad this this seems and how how unending this seems, every empire that thinks it lasts forever doesn't. Yeah. Uh, and I think that is an important I think that's important rhetoric worth worth holding on to. No, I I I, I totally agree with that. And even though I take Robin's um, vision, well, Robin's and Crockett too, right? They they co-authored the five theses, I think, for uh, radical theology of the future. I take that to be somewhat normative, but at the same time, like right, he's invoking Malibu and the, the image of the salamander as opposed to the, the image of the phoenix. I'm completely appreciative of that. But of course, in Malibu, there's the mm, capacity of being as plastic to be explosive. And so I think it's not in either, either or. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's right. For me, it becomes like this question of how do we bring together, you know, the, the materialism of a Catherine Malibu with the sort of death of godness of a Nietzsche together with, you know, the apocalypticism of an Altizer. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know how to put these together, but they're all things that I find a certain affinity towards. I feel drawn towards them. And, and, and at the very least, I think there's something productive about trying to work out yeah. these sort of relations, which is why I, this passage uh, are examples of, 
of the kind of work in radical theology that I'm really interested in right now, because it is it is trying to push the boundaries of the field by creating these these linkages um, outside of the traditional canon. So bringing, you know, Catherine Malibu is not a radical theologian by any possible definition. And yet um, I think Jeff is revealing the way in which she is uh, an an important interlocutor for the tradition. Yeah. And I think at some point we'll probably have to have the more explicit discussion about like, you know, what is radical theology. And although it's a frustrating conversation and a perennial one and one that's ultimately irresolvable, I think it's one worth having from time to time. All right. So we've got one more reading here. It's, it's a classic that frankly, I wasn't aware of. I, I did not know this was a thing, but when I knew this was uh, this was the general theme we were talking about, I started, you know, poking around, and um, this poem popped up. T.S. Eliot, Ash Wednesday. Because I do not hope to turn again, because I do not hope, because I do not hope to turn. Desiring this man's gift and that man's scope, I no longer strive to strive towards such things. Why should the aged eagle stretch its wings? That's how I feel at 44. Why should I mourn the vanished power of the usual reign? Because I do not hope to know the infirm glory of the positive hour, because I do not think because I know I shall not know the one veritable transitory power, because I cannot drink there where trees flower and springs flow, for there is nothing again. Because I know that time is always time and place is always an only place, and what is actual is actual only for one time and only for one place. I rejoice that things are as they are, and I renounce the blessed face and renounce the voice because I cannot hope to turn again. Consequently, I rejoice, having to construct something upon which to rejoice. And pray to God to have mercy upon us, and pray that I may forget these matters that with myself I too much discuss, too much explain, because I do not hope to turn again. Let these words answer for what is done not to be done again. May the judgment not be too heavy upon us, because these wings are no longer wings to fly, but merely vans to beat the air, the air which is now thoroughly small and dry, smaller and drier than the will. Teach us to care and not to care. Teach us to sit still. Pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Pray for us now and at the hour of our death. I really don't know what to think, what to make of all of this. I sort of hear in this a difficulty with traditional faith. He renounces the blessed face, renounces the voice because he cannot hope to, he can't go back to that space. But consequently, there's a re, there's rejoicing because he has to construct something new. There's a a sense in which he's, he's very clearly saying, I, I can't go back to the sort of faith of the fathers, so to speak, but at the same time, I cannot completely free myself from this tradition. Uh, he prays that he may forget it. He's saying, uh, I don't believe any of this shit. God forgive me. Uh, this poem like kind of slaps. Uh, it's very, very good. Um, so I don't know exactly where to go with it because there's so much, right? Like, well, yeah. I think we could have done an alternate version of this, which is, you know, we read one, one stanza of this and then sure. discuss one stanza and then the entire episode on just this poem. Cause I think it's so, so fascinating. Right. So it's Ash Wednesday. It's this moment of recognition of finitude and repentance and preparation for the Lent season in which is itself a period of preparation for uh, Easter. Um, and yet I do not hope to turn. Uh, and I think that like, I think that's quite literally, that is a reference to repentance and conversion, right? Mm -hmm. That, that, you know, what is it? Uh, metanoia is, 
is about this turning, turning one's mind um, uh, to think differently. And so what we get here is on, you know, it is a poem dedicated to the day of repentance and it is opening with a refusal to hope and a refusal to repent or convert or like uh, to convert oneself, to convert one's heart. Um, That I think is really, really fascinating because I do not hope to turn again because I do not hope because I do not hope to turn. Um, That is a, I think a remarkable way of opening a poem dedicated to Ash Wednesday um, because it is, it's radical, but not, I, I don't think in like a cheap sort of atheistic, you know, sort of like, you know, screw you, God, uh, you know, I'm not going yeah. to go in my own way, JC. Fuck you. Yeah, I'm Richard Dawkins. Uh, it's not it's not that. Instead, I think it's Elliot's heart of heart speaking out in this moment that says on this day of repentance, I can't bring myself to repent and I can't bring myself to repent because I can't bring myself to hope. And that's like fucking heavy. That's dark, but in a way that I think is, is, you know, is, is, is doing what poetry is supposed to do, which is tapping into the unsaid. Right. Because I think that's, you know, what does it mean to walk up and get the ashes on your, your head? I think for many people, it is to do this. It is to walk up and say, I don't have hope and I don't repent. Um, Yeah. Because that's where I'm at. And yet there's a sort of tacit, irony in that too i think because he talks about how he cannot drink and almost in a a sort of um he regrets this right i cannot drink there where trees flower and springs flow for there is nothing again right talking about as i take it for lack of a better word source right Mm -hmm. god is like there's nothing there i have nothing there's nothing for me to take nourishment and refreshment from after the death of God, the desire for God remains. Yeah. And it's that sort of that that's the sort of tension that I think is really powerful throughout this. It's a it's a dialectical tension that runs through this. It is a refusal. And yet it is not it is not a flat refusal. It is living mm. in that space of tension. So on the one hand, I rejoice that things are as they are. And I renounce the blessed face and renounce the voice. Like pretty iconoclastic. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one stanza before he, he writes and pray to God to have mercy on us. Yeah. And you know, three stanzas before he is literally just writing out liturgy. (laughs) Right. And this is, this is, I think emblematic of radical theology in general. It's it's born out of this Protestant tradition, but it's a, it's a tradition of uh, largely of critique and prophetic tradition of no saying, but it's not a pure no. Maybe that's kind of the affinity I'm picking up on here, right? Like his his no is not a pure no. It's a no in service of, of, a, of a deeper impulse, of a deeper yes. Um, and that the the ashes of the tradition, are, which are no longer adequate, mm-hmm. need to be left behind. And he, and he says here, I rejoice. I have to construct something new. And I, and I rejoice that I have this project that's really compelling to me personally and beautiful. Mm. And, and then there's like this sort of slight qualification backing off. It's like, well, you know, if I'm wrong, well, then God have mercy upon us. <laughs> and I, and I really appreciate that because for me personally, that idea of God as a merciful God, God as a forgiving God is what sort of makes possible the opening up of these new spaces. And, and that's is, I think, again, I think is the strangeness of this passage. So this is a poem that he wrote after he converted from being Unitarian, where there's no judgment, mm. to being an Anglican who specifically defined himself as an Anglo-Catholic. Uh, that's, that's an interesting trajectory. Yeah. So he's an Anglo-Catholic and he's entered this, but he enters it with this anxiety around judgment, which I think is is very interesting and very strange. Right. So you see this in that last piece. Pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Pray for us now at the hour of our death. And he drops that word sinners there, which I think is really interesting and profound. So there is there is, uh, I think, an aspect of this poem that is that is anxious around the idea of sin and judgment. Um, And that on the one hand is not, it doesn't want to, he doesn't seem to want to cast away judgment, 
right? He doesn't want to. And so, you know, I think maybe that would be embodied in his rejection of Unitarianism, for example. Um, and yet there's this idea of of refusing to live a life of 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 turning to use the language here and, and instead wanting to rejoice. You know, what does he say? I rejoice that things are as they are um, the sort of Walt Whitman esque embrace of the world as it is um you know uh you know suck the marrow out of life that sort of 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 thing is happening here and so there's this this tension i at least i'm i'm seeing a tension yeah where on the one hand he wants to affirm uh this idea of judgment and yet on the other hand he wants to also be able to just affirm the reality of life uh, and not have to live a life of second guessing. Uh, and I think the tension between those two is really interesting and productive here. Yeah, it's really interesting and really sort of relevant to some some of the other things that we've been talking about. There is this tension within radical theology that I think this this really sort of sums up in an existential sense, in a theological sense. Mm-hmm that gets translated into different registers. And I think there's a, there's a certain sense in which it's important to kind of stay with that tension um, that avoids absolutisms of various kinds. Yeah. And, you know, you see this in, in Nietzsche again to, you know, to return to Nietzsche again, uh, maybe to bring it full circle with this notion of the death of God that we opened by talking about. There is an ambiguity to the death of God that runs throughout Nietzsche's work in the sense that, on the one hand, it sometimes seems to be a claim about the nature of the absolute, right? That there is ultimately no God, uh, you know, this transcendent figure does not exist. Uh, there is no, maybe in a more abstract sense, there is no absolute foundation for reality, something along those lines. Yeah. And so it's the sort of metaphysical ontological claim. On the other side, it's also always kind of an existential claim right. that to proclaim the death of God is to... Uh, is to seize life um, and and to um, to insist upon taking on the role of creator and maintainer of one's own being in some sense to to make yourself to treat yourself as an artistic work that is always growing and changing. Um, and so I think you see that here, right there, that yeah. tension between the ontological and the existential, I think, is 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 being worked out poetically in Eliot in the same way it's being worked out philosophically in, in someone like Nietzsche. Yeah, totally. And I think it's worth staying with that tension that I think is productive in different ways. I think that we've pretty much run these things down. Is there anything else that you want to say about any of these pecs or about the occasion of Ash Wednesday in general or anything else? Um, not too much about these texts. I think we've sort of rung the as many gems as as I'm able to get out this at this point in an evening. Um, but I will say that I'm I'm excited to be part of this project now, um, uh, sort of formally and officially. And uh, to the listeners who aren't that interested in radical theology, uh, I'll I'll say you know don't fear that this is all we're going to talk about is the death of God in every podcast episode going forward. The hope is is to use this podcast as a platform for expanding the scope of radical theology rather than um, using the connection to radical theology as a way of narrowing the scope of the podcast. And so I'm really excited about the different directions that we're going to be able to take this project. Nice. Sounds good. Awesome. 